Well, thank you very much for coming, taking a break from hand washing and social isolation and all that stuff. Um, I'm Daniel Field. I'm a lecturer here in the Department of Earth Sciences. Uh, and I study vertebrate paleontology with a focus on the fossil record and evolutionary history of birds. So we're going to be talking about the origin of modern bird diversity today. And the reason that we're interested in this subject, I mean, if there are any birders in the audience, it won't come as a surprise. Birds today are the most diverse and ubiquitously distributed group of tetrapod animals. There are over 10,000 living species, and of course, modern birds exhibit this incredible degree of variety in terms of their colors and their forms and their lifestyles. So for evolutionary biologists like me, birds offer a fantastic group to study in order to try to understand how all of their amazing features and diversity have come to be. But I'm a paleontologist, which means that most of the data that I work with um, tend to be featherless. And uh, a lot of the uh, specimens that we look at uh, tend to look something like this. We're mostly restricted to looking at bones. Um, but I also spend a lot of time in the field observing and studying modern birds and photographing them. And I do this because birds, of course, are such a fascinating group of animals. But from an evolutionary perspective, studying them in the field gives us this amazing opportunity to come up with interesting hypotheses that we can then try to test using data from the fossil record. So, for anybody interested in bird evolutionary biology, this is really kind of the best time that there ever has been because over the last 10 years or so, we've made some amazing strides towards coming up with a more complete understanding of how the major groups of living birds are related to one another. And this has happened for two different reasons. First of all, we have an unparalleled ability to sequence uh, genomic data from living birds, and we also have you know, incredible computational resources now that we can use to analyze these vast genetic data sets and build evolutionary trees like this. So this is basically a family tree showing how the major groups of living birds are related to one another. So there are 200 different living bird species on the tree here, representing all of the uh, uh, extant living diversity of modern birds, close to 11,000 living species with 200 kind of representative exemplars. So this is to date the most comprehensive picture of the bird tree of life that we have, and it provides us with an amazing framework for thinking about how the specialized features that characterize these different groups across the tree of life first came to be. So obviously, from an evolutionary perspective, uh, studying modern birds in this way using genomic data is incredibly uh, uh, useful. But there are limits to the sort of evolutionary questions that we can answer using only data from living birds. Because the fossil record provides us with the only direct insight that we'll ever have about how evolutionary history has actually played out. So one thing the fossil record can tell us is that at one point in time, there were bizarre birds like this that lived on this planet. So this strange looking skull belongs to a bird, even though it doesn't really look like a bird skull at all. And it comes from a group that we call colloquially the pseudo-toothed birds. So they're pseudo-toothed because those tooth-like structures that you see along the beak are not real teeth. They're actually sharp, bony projections that come off of the lower and upper jaws that would have been covered with keratinous 
beak tissue, um, like you see in any sort of normal bird. But obviously, it doesn't look like a normal bird at all. And in fact, these pseudo-toothed birds were around for quite a long time. The oldest ones that we know of in the fossil record are about 60 million years old. And they existed until actually not that long ago. They went extinct in the last few million years. So actually, pseudo-toothed birds existed for a very long time. So without fossils of these pseudo-toothed birds, obviously, we'd be totally oblivious to their existence and the sort of evolutionary potential that the bird skull has to create kind of bizarre forms like this. But not only were the pseudo-toothed birds really strange looking uh, uh, in terms of what their skulls looked like, they were absolutely enormous. In fact, they were the largest flying birds to ever live. So silhouetted here is the living bird with the largest wingspan on Earth today. That's a wandering albatross uh, with a wingspan about, th um, well, three, maybe, gosh, I'm always bad at actually getting these numbers right. Pretty good wingspan. <laughs> Um, and, and what you can see is that the silhouette of the wandering albatross, basically a wandering albatross could fit in the armpit of one of these pseudo-toothed birds when one of these pseudo-toothed birds was out soaring around on the ancient oceans. So obviously, the fossil record not only tells us that these bizarre pseudo-toothed birds existed, but this information from the fossil record challenges our preconceptions about what the upper limits on vertebrate flight actually were. So these are absolutely amazing fossils. And for paleontologists, insights like these are the reason that we go and spend long hours in the field looking for new fossil discoveries. Um, and I know how long those hours can be because that entire field season, we spent the whole summer digging in Colorado. We found uh, no evidence of fossil birds at all. <laughs> so finding fossil birds is hard. But when we find these fossils, they have unique potential to provide us with insight into bird evolutionary history that we would be totally oblivious to otherwise. So I want to do two major things in this talk today. First of all, I want to give sort of a, a very general uh, overview of some of the research that we've done in the last few years into the evolution and origins of, of modern birds and how the fossil record sheds light on those topics. And then I want to focus on one question in particular that has really sort of dominated uh, our uh, research interests over the last few years. And that question is how the extinction event that wiped out the giant dinosaurs about 66 million years ago influenced the subsequent evolutionary history of birds. And if you manage to stay awake until the very end, I have a, uh, a surprise for you, but you have to, you have to stay awake. So before we actually talk about fossils, let's look at one of these evolutionary trees again. So this is another evolutionary tree uh, generated on the basis of genetic data. But instead of only focusing in on birds, this provides us with a very general overview of how the major groups of vertebrate animals are related to one another. So we can see mammals here. We can see uh, the group that includes lizards and snakes. We can see amphibians. Um, but if we focus in on where birds are on the tree of life here, we see that they're part of a group called Archosauria. And if you look carefully, you might notice that the closest living relatives of birds are actually crocodilians. So this is actually something that we've known for a long time. Birds and crocodilians are each other's closest living relatives, but they're not particularly closely related when you think about it. They last shared a common ancestor over 250 million years ago. So we're really talking about an evolutionary divergence that took place a long time ago, way, way back. 
And maybe that's not so surprising because birds and crocodilians, not a surprise to learn, pretty different from one another. But given the fact that they shared a common ancestor at some point in Earth history, if we actually want to learn about how all of the specialized features that characterize modern birds came to be subsequent to the last time they shared a common ancestor with crocodilians, there's one branch of the tree of life that we have to focus in on. And it, let's see if this works. I had to convert this presentation to PDF, so I'm not sure it'll, there it is. Okay, it's this branch here in blue, right? Arising at the common ancestor of birds and crocodilians and leading to the most recent common ancestor of all living birds. So we have a name for that branch on the tree of life and we call it the avian stem group. And the avian stem group is populated only by extinct animals that we know about from the fossil record. So if we actually want to be able to answer these questions about how and when and ultimately why modern birds came to be, we need to interrogate that branch of the tree of life by turning to the fossil record from the Mesozoic era, which is often called the age of dinosaurs. So that branch on the tree of life, the avian stem group, can basically be defined. Anything that we call a stem group bird is a fossil organism outside the living diversity of birds, but nonetheless more closely related to birds than to crocodilians. So any fossil along that uh, 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 branch of the tree of life is called a stem group bird, and it turns out that there is a huge diversity of things that we can call stem group birds. So this term, stem group birds, encompasses all dinosaurs from the Mesozoic era. So it includes the giant long-necked dinosaurs, the bizarre horned dinosaurs like Triceratops, uh, the giant three-toed carnivorous dinosaurs, which we call theropods, which of course include uh, Tyrannosaurus rex. And as we move along the avian stem lineage, we start to see animals that look more and more reminiscent of modern birds because we see the stepwise evolutionary acquisition of those features that today characterize modern birds. Things like feathers and a toothless beak, reduction of the forelimbs, all sorts of things. So you can see a few stem group birds up there that actually look a lot more like birds. So fossils from this portion of the tree of life, that blue branch that we call the avian stem lineage, have unique potential to shed light on all kinds of interesting evolutionary questions about the acquisition of avian features like warm-bloodedness, the ancestral ability to fly, the acquisition of feathers, all of these interesting evolutionary questions. And in the last few years, we focused in on a couple of these questions in particular detail um, with regard to uh, uh, thinking about the evolution of the characteristic avian toothless beak, um, a couple of years ago we discovered and um, put together this. This is the first complete three-dimensional reconstruction of the skull of a Mesozoic stem group bird that is very closely related to modern birds. So this is an animal that lived about 86 million years ago, uh, years ago called Ichthyornis. It was first discovered in the 1870s. So this is an iconic Mesozoic fossil. In fact, it's so old, you know, I think the first description of Ichthyornis was from 1872. So when you put that in a historical context, the origin of species, you know, Darwin's uh, uh, seminal work was initially published in 1859. 
So this was discovered at a really critical interval in terms of our understanding of, of evolutionary biology. And Darwin, who was still alive at the time, wrote to O.C. Marsh, uh, who was professor of paleontology at Yale, who first named Ichthyornis, and I'm paraphrasing, but basically said, thanks for finding that cool bird with teeth. Provides me with some great support for my new theory. And uh, anyway, we didn't know that much about the skull of Ichthyornis, even though we had found in the 1870s some fragmentary remains that showed that it had teeth. Um, and now we have a much clearer understanding of what it actually looked like. And with those teeth, you see at the very front of the skull, in red there, the earliest manifestation of a toothless beak, homologous with that which we see in modern birds, ever found in the fossil record. So we see that Ichthyornis combined this toothless beak at the tip of its jaws with jaws that otherwise looked much more like the jaws of a carnivorous theropod dinosaur. So this tells us a lot about how the toothless beak of living birds first came to be. We've also learned a lot about the evolution of warm-bloodedness. So uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, we published a paper that looks at dinosaur eggshells. So we looked at uh, all three of the major branches of dinosaurs from the Mesozoic era, the long-necked sauropod dinosaurs, those, um, the Ornithischian dinosaurs, which include duck-billed dinosaurs and horned dinosaurs, and Mesozoic theropod dinosaurs, those carnivorous dinosaurs. And we found uh, using some new isotopic techniques, that the internal body temperatures of those modern dinosaurs, based on the carbonate mineral that makes up those dinosaur eggshells, seem to suggest that the body temperatures of those animals were within the range of variation of what we see in living birds. So actually, all of those major lineages of Mesozoic dinosaurs seem to have exhibited warm internal body temperatures, suggesting that the origin of bird-style warm-bloodedness is actually a truly ancient innovation and probably characterized the most recent common ancestor of all dinosaurs over 200 million years ago. So it seems like the warm-bloodedness of modern birds is in fact just something that has been retained throughout the evolutionary history of dinosaurs. Um, so that's got us thinking about uh, sort of the physiology of dinosaurs and the evolution of birds in, in a new way. We can contrast that definition of the avian stem group, basically these things that are more distantly related to modern birds, with another term, this is the second and final term that I'll be uh, defining today, and that's the avian crown group. So when we use that term and talk about crown group birds, we're talking about the most recent common ancestor of all living birds and all of that ancestor's descendants. So that's basically the most recent common ancestor of an ostrich, and a sparrow, and all of that ancestor's descendants. And that characterizes all 11,000 living species of birds, as well as their extinct ancestors going back to their most recent common ancestor. So the fossil record of crown group birds is really a story of the Cenozoic era. So a lot of people call the Cenozoic era the last 66 million years we're still in it, the age of mammals. That's obviously wrong, it's the age of birds, but this is sort of the, the uh, interval in time that we're mostly talking about when we talk about the avian crown group. And fossils from within the avian crown group, like uh, this dancing skeleton over here, a 52 million year old dancing, dancing skeleton, have unique potential to shed light on totally different evolutionary questions than fossils from the avian stem group do. 
So fossils from the avian crown group can answer questions like, when in Earth history did these important evolutionary divergences between major groups of living birds first take place? And they can also tell us where on Earth these groups of birds were formerly distributed. So in terms of when on Earth these groups diverge from one another, we've been interested in this group of birds for a long time. So these are representatives of a group of birds that are technically called passerine birds, but the group is more colloquially known as the perching birds. So this includes songbirds, things like robins and uh, tits and blackbirds in our gardens, uh, as well as a huge diversity of other living species. In fact, there are about 6,000 living species of passerine birds. And so by combining information from the fossil record with information from new genome sequences of living passerine birds, we were able to come up with a time-calibrated picture of the passerine bird tree of life and get a better understanding of how major events in Earth history, like periods of climate change and, and changing sea levels, uh, continents moving around, that kind of thing, might have influenced the evolutionary history of these passerine birds. But the more exciting story that I want to focus on here is basically what the fossil record can tell us about where major groups of living birds were formerly distributed. So anybody in the audience who's a, a world birder and has been lucky enough to, to travel the world in search of exotic birds um, might know what these bizarre birds uh, from sub-Saharan Africa are. Does anybody know the name of this group? Sorry? <laughs> Did I hear, tur no I didn't. Uh, uh, yeah, turacos, exactly, yes. So, so these, these, these fantastic birds are, are called turacos. Um, so uh, turacos are a relatively small group of birds. There are only 23 or 24 living species, depending on how you split them up. But as you can see, they are, well, those are not to scale. They're not quite that big. Um, but they're fairly big. Um, tree-dwelling birds, and they're absolutely fascinating. They're, they're brightly colored, they're really charismatic. Um, sometimes you can see them in, in zoos and, and aviaries if you're not in sub-Saharan Africa. But it's a fascinating group of birds. And we didn't know very much about the early evolutionary history of this group until we took a much closer look at this dancing fossil from 52 million years ago. And we found that this fossil, which is named, it's got a funny name, it's called Foropinarium, like 4.0, Strange name. Anyway, this fossil called Foro seems to be the earliest known relative of Turicos that we're aware of in the fossil record. And that's interesting for a few reasons. It can tell us a little bit about the evolution of Turicos themselves. But what's really interesting about that fossil is that it comes from Western North America, just like I do. And uh, it, uh, it comes from Wyoming in the US. I'm from Western Canada. Um, so there's some room for improvement, but it, uh, uh, like I was saying, it's 52 million years old, and it comes from these famous fossil beds in Wyoming called the Green River Formation. So living turacos are found in sub-Saharan Africa in the present day, but that 52 million year old fossil is in North America. And if we're actually right about what this fossil is, that's just something very interesting about where the group that includes turacos today was formerly distributed many million years ago. So it definitely seems strange to have a turaco-like bird in North America. But in fact, when you look at the bird fossil record, you see this pattern over and over and over, whereby major groups of living birds with restricted modern geographic distributions 
seem to have early fossil relatives in totally different parts of the world. So this group over on the left, called rollers, um, this beautiful group of birds in the present day, uh, is restricted to the old world. So they're distributed. There's migratory species in Europe that you can find from the Iberian Peninsula uh, in the west. Uh, and then you see other migratory rollers uh, all the way over into Australasia in the present day. But the earliest known fossil record of rollers comes from North America. So in fact, in some ways, this is kind of a, like a similar disjunction to what we see in those terracos. It seems to have been some sort of shift during roller evolutionary history from a new world distribution to an old world distribution. And the opposite seems to be the case for hummingbirds. So probably all aware that there aren't any hummingbirds in Cambridge today, which is sad. Um, in fact, hummingbirds are only found in the New World. They're found in North America and mostly in South America. And there are hundreds of living species all found in the New World. But the earliest fossil record of hummingbirds comes from Europe. And surprisingly, it's a fairly rich fossil record, whereby these early teeny tiny um, hummingbird fossils sort of document the, the transition from more of an insectivorous uh, lifestyle, uh, similar to living swifts, to uh, a nectar-specialized uh, uh, lifestyle like we see in living hummingbirds. So early hummingbirds seem to have uh, had short bills, unlike living hummingbirds, uh, and they seem to have uh, progressively gotten longer throughout their evolutionary history. So we used to have hummingbirds over here, and at some point they disappeared. I'm not totally sure why. I'd like to know the answer. But in the present day, unfortunately for us, they're only in North America. What about mouse birds? So mouse birds are another sort of funny looking group of birds known to uh, bird connoisseurs who've uh, been lucky enough to, to look for birds in sub-Saharan Africa. But mouse birds formerly were found in very different parts of the world as well. And in fact, they're very characteristic components of early Cenozoic fossil avifaunas from both North America and Europe. So it's more similar to the story that we saw in Turicos. So the point that we can really take away from the bird fossil record is that the geographic distributions of major groups of birds seem to have changed dramatically throughout the evolutionary history of modern birds, or crown group birds. <laughs> and it's important to note that we would have no idea about any of these changes in the geographic distributions of these groups were it not for the fossil evidence. We need the fossil record to tell us where these groups were formerly distributed. So it raises all kinds of questions about where many of these groups actually originated, where modern birds themselves actually arose, and these are open scientific questions that we don't know the answers to yet. But there is a question that I think we can shed some light on given new scientific techniques, and that is the question of what might have driven some of these very dramatic geographic range shifts throughout the evolutionary history of modern birds. So to answer this question, I've been working with uh, my colleague Aaron Saup, who's a professor at the University of Oxford. And we've decided to look at this question from an ecological perspective. So if we're interested in trying to understand where many of these uh, groups of birds originated, uh, we can focus in on turacos again, because they're so charismatic. Um, as I was telling you before, turacos are only found in sub-Saharan Africa. So we can use information about where they're distributed in the present day to characterize uh, basically where uh, in Africa you might find a turaco. 
and get a sense of what the temperature and precipitation conditions in those different parts of Africa are. So we can use those data on temperature and precipitation to put together a model that looks like this. So this is called a niche model. And areas in red are areas characterized by precipitation and temperature that are suitable for occupation by living turicos. Areas in yellow are kind of okay, and areas in blue are, are no good. You won't find turricos in those areas. And so we can use this niche model to really get a sense of where on earth living uh, turricos might be happy if you sort of uh, released one from a cage anywhere around the world. Don't think we should do that, although I think Cambridge would really benefit from some you know, large, colorful, charismatic birds like those. But if we did that in Cambridge, unfortunately, Turcos probably would not be very happy. Uh, as you can see, uh, East Anglia looks pretty blue um, on the map there. But in fact, most of the modern world looks pretty blue when we take this niche model for living Turcos and project it across the modern world. And that's especially true for Western North America where that fossil came from. So that blue dot shows you where the Green River Formation was, where that 52 million year old fossil was dug up. But what would happen if we actually took the same niche model in the present day and projected it back in time to when that fossil was alive? If we used paleoclimatic data and asked what this niche model would look like projected onto a 52 million year old world. Well, when we do that and use paleoclimate data from the Eocene 52 million years ago, we see a very different looking map of the world. And in fact, Western North America seems to have been pretty suitable for occupation by organisms with physiological tolerances similar to those of living turricos. So if we took one of those turricos in the present day in a time machine, released it in Western North America, it would probably be pretty happy. So we can do this at different time intervals throughout the Cenozoic to get a sense of how climatic change over the last 50 or so million years might have influenced the potentially habitable distributions of turricos. And in fact, when we go from the Eocene into the Oligocene, this is a period of time, it's a lower res paleoclimate model, you kind of have to squint. Um, but uh, when you move from the Eocene into the Oligocene, which was a period characterized by lower temperatures uh, than the Eocene, we start to see the potentially habitable distribution of these birds changing. And all of a sudden, Western North America is looking much less nice for turicos. And we can do this over and over again, looking at different groups of birds that today are found in the tropics, but which have fossil representatives at high latitudes in the northern or southern hemispheres. And when we do that, we see a similar story in all of these different groups. It seems like early in the evolutionary history of these groups, they probably would have been able to occupy a much wider uh, swathe of the globe. And as time went on, uh, and uh, global temperatures generally trended towards uh, uh, cooler temperatures, obviously we're reversing that a little bit now very quickly, um, it seems like the geographic distributions of these groups basically became more and more restricted down towards low latitudes, which is where these groups tend to be distributed in the present day. So that suggests that for many of these groups, the fact that many of them are found only in Africa today or only in Australasia or only in Northern South America may in fact be uh, indicative of nothing more than relictual distributions of groups that were formerly much more widely distributed than these birds are in the present day. 
And it's important when we think about where groups of modern birds originated that we take this kind of propensity for moving around the globe into account. And this is the sort of thing that basically casts a lot of doubt on our understanding of where many groups of modern birds were formerly found. So we sort of breezed through the stem group fossil record of birds and the crown group fossil record of birds, which is great, because now we have time to talk about this really fascinating subject, which is something that's really captured our imaginations over the last few years, which is kind of homing in on the question of when dinosaurs like yourselves <laughs> disappeared. Uh, I mean, Triceratops is a great one to be wearing because Triceratops was one of the very last dinosaurs, non-avian dinosaurs, to exist. So Triceratops is one of those, uh, <laughs> in fact, some of them are still around. Um, <laughs> Triceratops and, and T-Rex, some of the most iconic dinosaurs that we know of, disappeared 66.02 million years ago. And that point in time was a really fascinating one. Because the more we dig into this topic, the more we realize that homing in on the extinction of the dinosaurs means homing in on the question of moving from a world that was dominated by stem group birds to a world that became dominated by crown group birds. So for anybody interested in bird evolutionary history, this transition from the stem to the crown is really a, a fascinating subject. And amazingly, it's something that until recently we haven't known very much about because the fossil record of birds in that interval is sparse. But we've been trying to fill it in. So who knows basically what marked the transition from sort of left to right, from stem to crown? What happened to the planet 66.02 million years ago? That's right, yeah, I mean, so, so Earth was struck by a giant space rock. So an asteroid about the size of Manhattan struck the Earth 66 million years ago and really changed things for birds and for everything else that was around at the time. It was a bad day. So let's look at our bird tree of life again and flip it on its side. We already talked about how this tree of life is really useful for telling us which groups are most closely related to which other groups, basically how a lot of specializations of living birds came to be. But there's something I didn't mention about this tree, which is that it's actually calibrated to time. So when you look at the vertical axis of this family tree, you can get a sense of when in Earth history many of these groups actually originated. And this is accomplished by taking the DNA sequences that we use to basically build this tree and the rates of change of those DNA sequences to estimate how long ago these different groups used to share a common ancestor. So this is a technique called the molecular clock. And we calibrate rates of genetic change across the bird family tree with the earliest known fossil occurrences of major groups of birds distributed across the tree of life. So if we have a fossil of, say, a duck from, say, 40 million years ago, then we know that minimally the divergence between ducks and their closest living relatives had to have taken place over 40 million years ago. It's a pretty, I mean, it's kind of a simple example, but that's essentially how it works. So the more fossils we have to calibrate our molecular clock, the more precise our understanding of when in Earth history these different groups arose will be. 
And given our sort of uh, new understanding of how old many of these different groups of modern birds uh, actually are, some interesting patterns emerge from thinking about the temporal scale of this tree. And in fact, when you look down towards the bottom of the family tree, you'll see that many of the deepest evolutionary divergences within the entire tree of life, these divergences down towards the root of the tree, seem to have taken place in rapid succession around one point in evolutionary history, in Earth history in particular. So when was that? Well, this point that seems to basically characterize lots of rapid divergences within the modern bird tree of life was, is, is 66 million years ago. So this is the point in Earth history when this asteroid the size of Manhattan struck what's now the Yucatan Peninsula uh, and, uh, and wreaked a lot of havoc. So this was a big deal. Simulations have suggested that uh, ejecta from this impact might have struck the moon. We're talking about uh, an event on an absolutely global scale. Uh, basically nothing on land, no vertebrate animals on land larger than maybe five kilograms made it across this mass extinction event. Um, I weigh more than five kilograms. Uh, I hope something like this doesn't happen in the next little while. Um, it would be even worse than a viral pandemic. Um, it's, uh, it was a major, major event. So there were massive extinctions in the oceans, there were massive extinctions on land, entire groups of animals like all non-avian dinosaurs, uh, these giant sea monsters, the mosasaurs and the, the long-necked plesiosaurs in the oceans, they disappeared completely uh, 66 million years ago. And only a handful of groups of, of vertebrate animals like uh, certain crocodilians and certain turtles seem to have made it through this mass extinction event relatively unscathed. But what happened to birds? So for a long time, this question was totally unknown, owing to the fact that the bird fossil record from about 66 million years ago was fairly sparse. So when people wrote about it, they basically had to admit uh, a lot of uncertainty, basically arguing that the bird fossil record from that point in Earth history was so sparse that we couldn't definitively say whether birds were strongly affected by the mass extinction or not. And that sort of uncertainty essentially remained the case um, until close to 10 years ago now, around the time that I was starting my PhD, and, and we started getting really interested in this question. So one thing we know about the late Cretaceous, sort of the, the latter part of the age of dinosaurs, is that there were a lot of very bird-like stem group birds around. So this is the point in time where uh, uh, stem group birds had acquired a lot of those features that we associate with modern birds. Um, crown group birds don't seem to have originated until very late in the Cretaceous indeed. Obviously, crown group birds made it across the extinction event. But exactly what happened to these very bird-like stem group birds was not totally clear. We know they're not around today, so at some point in time they must have disappeared, but we weren't totally sure exactly when they went extinct. And so we decided to survey the bird fossil record as closely as we could from the latest part of the Cretaceous and the earliest part of the Cenozoic. And when we did that, we found that in fact, all of these major groups of Mesozoic stem group birds extended all the way up through the Cretaceous fossil record up to what we call the KPG boundary. So this is the boundary that marks the transition from the age of dinosaurs to the age of mammals 66 million years ago. They all persisted up to the asteroid impact, after which point they're never found in the fossil record again. So it seems on the basis of those fossil data that 
the uh, extinction event was really severe with respect to bird-like animals. And in fact, some of our recent research, this is a, a CT scan of a new fossil that we're working on from the very, very end of the age of dinosaurs, suggests that some of these groups were actually far more diverse than we ever realized all the way into the very latest stages of the Cretaceous period, after which point they're just totally, totally gone. So what can we say on the basis of this information about the impact of the asteroid on avian evolutionary history? Well, it seems like birds were strongly impacted by that asteroid impact, just like almost every other group of vertebrate animals. But it raises some questions, because birds didn't go extinct. In fact, birds ultimately did pretty well. So what actually happened to the early ancestors of crown group birds that were around 66 million years ago that ultimately gave rise to the birds that we have on Earth today? And also, why did those crown group birds make it through this extinction event when all of these otherwise very bird-like stem group birds went extinct. So what separated crown group birds from these uh, ill-fated stem group birds? Well, the first question we, we decided to uh, uh, try to investigate regarding uh, avian evolution 66 million years ago was what happened to the evolution of bird body size at that point in Earth history. So this is work that I did uh, with my friend Jake Burr, who uh, at the time was doing his PhD at Cornell University in the US. Um, he took a break from catching toucans to write this paper with me. And we were uh, interested in basically exactly that. What happened to bird body size 66 million years ago? Because I told you that only relatively small bodied things survived the extinction event. Nothing larger than about the size of a cat made it through. So did that actually hold true for birds as well? Well, I'll make a very long story short, yes it did. It seems like all of the relatively large-bodied bird-like things that were around 66 million years ago went extinct, and it seems like the early ancestors of modern birds that actually survived were relatively small-bodied. That's kind of interesting in itself, suggests that birds weren't so different from these other groups that uh, seem to have been selected against based on being too large. Probably that has to do with the fact that large animals have higher total metabolic requirements than small animals do probably uh, was difficult to find enough to eat in the immediate aftermath of that extinction event for large animals to survive. But it's actually more uh, interesting than that because bird body size is associated with all kinds of other interesting biological features. Uh, bird, bird body size is related to things like... <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> it's been more entertaining to look in that direction, actually. <laughs> Bird body size is associated with all kinds of interesting biological features, including the rate at which DNA sequences evolve. So small-bodied birds exhibit higher rates of uh, nucleotide substitution or, or genome uh, evolution than living birds do, or than, than large birds do. So when you attempt to map estimated rates of genetic change across the bird tree of life, you see that there's a lot of variance. So the fastest evolving, uh, the birds with the fastest evolving rates of genome change evolve about 20 times faster than the slowest evolving uh, groups of birds. And that's strongly associated with body size. And something that's very interesting is that because we see this apparent trend towards small body size among surviving lineages of birds across this extinction event, 
Some of the fastest estimated rates of genetic change that we see on the bird tree of life coincide with those branches of the bird tree of life that cross the end Cretaceous mass extinction event. So that's definitely the most complex part of the talk. But basically, the trends that we're seeing here is that there seems to have been a, a strong trend towards reduced body size among surviving lineages of birds that made it through the uh, asteroid-induced extinction event. Birds were small. The fact that small-bodied birds exhibit faster rates of genomic change than large-bodied birds suggests that that may have induced a pulse of relatively rapid genomic change 66 million years ago. And if that's true, it may be the case that at some level, these rapid rates of genetic changes 66 million years ago may be related to the very rapid diversification of birds that we seem to be inferring to have taken place about 66 million years ago. So we think the size-related story is pretty important here. But why did modern birds actually survive this extinction event when those other bird-like animals did not? So this is a question that we uh, addressed from more of an ecological perspective again. Um, so when I converted this to a PDF, my video got lost, unfortunately. Uh, but this is a pretty neat simulation. So, so this is a geophysical simulation of basically what would have happened in the hours following the asteroid impact. So asteroid strikes the Earth right here, and this sort of orange cloud grows. And over the course of uh, basically the, the first two days post-asteroid impact, this orange cloud essentially engulfs the globe. So what is the orange cloud? Those are areas of the Earth estimated to have heated above the, the temperature at which uh, uh, vegetation would spontaneously combust. So on the basis of these sorts of geophysical simulations, people have argued that wildfires must have broken out almost sim simultaneously around the world, uh, coinciding with the asteroid impact. But what does the actual fossil record of plants tell us? Um, does it corroborate this idea or not? Well, it's pretty hard to actually get precise information about something that happened over the course of days or weeks or months 66 million years ago, but we tried. And so this is work that I did with two paleobotanists, people who study the fossil record of plants, Reagan Dunn and Antoine Bercovici, who are actually experts in the fossil record of plant microfossils, things like pollen. Pollen happens to fossilize really well, which is great, because it means that you can get a great sample size of many different kinds of plants on the basis of their pollen, um, sampling millimeter by millimeter by millimeter by millimeter in rocks across the KPG boundary. So when we look at those microfossils from plants that we're able to see in rocks just before the asteroid impact, we see that our microscope slides are totally dominated by a diverse and abundant array of different kinds of plants, many of which would have been canopy-forming trees. But if we go across the KPG boundary into the earliest part of the Cenozoic, we see that almost all of those angiosperm and gymnosperm pollens are gone, and instead they're replaced by one or two different kinds of fern spores. So this is a phenomenon called the KPG fern spike. So if we look at a column of rocks, that crosses the KPG boundary. So moving from the age of dinosaurs below to the KPG boundary and then up into the age of mammals, our pollen data look like this. So this is what happens to our Cretaceous angiosperms at the KPG boundary. They totally, they totally crater. 
and we see this enormous spike in the abundance of ferns. So ferns are often primary colonizers of denuded landscapes. So if there's a large wildfire in the present day or volcanic flow that wipes out all of the vegetation in an area, oftentimes ferns are the first plants that colonize those uh, destroyed landscapes. So we think that this is probably associated with that. And so if we look up through the, uh, the rock record into the age of mammals, we see this slow recovery of the sorts of plants that we think would have formed canopies. Things like palms and pines seem to have taken hundreds, if not thousands of years to recover when we look at the pollen fossil record. And this is not an isolated phenomenon. We see it in rocks all around the world, from New Zealand into Eurasia into North America and in South America as well. We see this uh, apparently global evidence for the destruction of forest ecosystems about 66 million years ago. And that seems to be associated with the asteroid impact. So if this did take place, if there was a period of time when forests around the world were devastated by the asteroid impact, how would this have influenced the evolutionary history of birds? I'll have to move through it pretty quickly because we're getting close to uh, an hour here. But this is a topic that we address by looking at the early fossil record of stem group birds from the age of dinosaurs, the early fossil record of crown group birds from the age of mammals, and reconstructions based on modern bird ecology. And to make a long story short regarding the stem group birds, by far the most diverse and widespread group of stem group birds in the late part of the Cretaceous were a group called the opposite birds. They're called the enantiornithines. So this is a group that totally went extinct at the KPG boundary. But before the extinction event, they were the most diverse and widespread group of bird-like animals. And their feet looked like that. They had these strongly recurved claws. Their toes were quite long. They had a, a, a reversed hind toe. These are all features that we see strongly associated with perching in trees in the present day. So it seems like this formerly diverse group of opposite birds were strongly tied to perching in trees. And this group completely disappears 66 million years ago. So we think that as denizens of the forest, they were probably doomed when these global wildfires broke out. What about crown group birds? What about the evolutionary history of modern birds? Well, if we use our tree, it can guide us to an answer about what probably happened to living birds 66 million years ago. Because as you know, some groups of birds only spend their lives on the ground. They don't spend any of their lives in trees. Some groups of birds spend almost all of their lives in trees and almost never come down to the ground. And then some groups of birds have more of a mixed ecology, spending some of their lives in trees and some of their lives on the ground. Now we can take those ecological traits that we see in living birds and we can trace their evolutionary history across our modern bird family tree using statistical methods. So this is a technique called ancestral ecological reconstructions. And it allows us to ask statistically what we think the most recent common ancestor of all living birds was probably doing ecologically. And when we perform this kind of analysis, we see with very strong statistical support that probably the most recent common ancestor of all living birds was a non-tree-dwelling bird. And this is something that we infer, in fact, for all of the deepest ancestors within the modern bird tree of life. It seems like the early evolutionary history of modern birds probably did not take place in the trees. 
And so the evolutionary transitions that gave rise to those groups that we think of today as being tree-dwelling birds apparently all took place subsequently. So this red line here, that red circle, that's the position of the KPG boundary. So if you look at the branches that actually cross through that red circle across the KPG boundary, those are all brown branches, suggesting that the only surviving lineages of birds to make it across the mass extinction event were ground-dwelling birds. If you lived in trees, you were probably toast. And I'm actually going to skip through this because I want to wrap up by telling you something really neat, which is that, again, long story short, it seems like this sort of global deforestation induced by the asteroid impact played a major role in the early evolutionary history of modern birds, but there's still things we need to learn about early modern bird evolution. So this is why it's important to get back out into the field and try to find new evidence for the evolutionary history of modern birds from just before and just after that asteroid impact. So the, the surprise that I definitely wanted to make sure to let you know about is that, well, we'll summarize first. Okay, we'll summarize first, and then, then I'll tell you about the surprise. So there's sort of three key ideas that we've talked about here that might help explain what happened to birds about 66 million years ago. So one of them is that it seems like the most recent common ancestor of all living birds probably lived at some point pretty late in the Cretaceous period. So the earliest ancestors of modern birds were probably around before the asteroid struck, but we don't know very much about them because we still need to find more fossils. We think that those surviving lineages of birds that made it across the KPG boundary were probably relatively small-bodied, and this is probably related to the fact that small-bodied animals need to eat less than large-bodied animals. And we also think that those early ancestors of modern birds that made it through the extinction event, at least for a period of time, were predominantly non-tree-dwelling birds. We think that an evolutionary transition towards living in trees actually probably took place pretty soon after the extinction event, but obviously after global forests had had a chance to recover hundreds to thousands of years after the extinction event. What we don't know is what birds from the latest part of the age of dinosaurs were really like. The fossil record of modern birds from this point in Earth history is incredibly sparse, and we have almost no direct evidence to really test these hypotheses. So we've talked about inferring about you know, what might have happened to birds uh, in terms of their ecology and their body size 66 million years ago, but it's hard to actually test those ideas with direct fossil evidence. Um, but what I wanted to tell you is that a week from today, uh, we'll be uh, publishing a paper uh, on the best evidence of birds that we have so far from this point in Earth history. So I'm kind of sworn to secrecy about um, exactly uh, what that fossil evidence tells us. Um, but it's very interesting because it, shed, it sheds direct light on all of these questions, how big these animals might have been, what these animals might have been doing ecologically, and what sort of factors might have been associated with how birds survived the extinction event um, when their giant non-avian dinosaur uh, relatives did not. So pay attention at, at 4 p.m. next Wednesday, exactly a week from today, and um, hopefully you'll, you'll be able to see whether we were right about anything that I just uh, told you about. 
So with that, um, I'd like to thank you so much for coming to this uh, Science Festival talk. It was a real pleasure to uh, chat with you this evening. And I think we have a few minutes in case anybody's interested in asking questions. Thank you. Is there a popular book that describes what you've just told us? Or is it all in academic journal? Well, truthfully, a lot of this work has only been published in the last few years. So I think it's been an important time in terms of our understanding really evolving uh, about the uh, early history of modern birds just over the last five years or so. So I think, yeah, it would be great to have a, a popular book uh, on the subject, but I, to my knowledge, there's nothing that really summarizes this sort of stuff out there yet. It would be fun. Do the recent wildfires in Australia offer any sort of insights into sort of behaviors in animals I mean, at some level, I think there's a lot to be learned about modern ecological destruction and how things might have actually played out a long time ago. So we've been literally digging into what happened across the KPG boundary in more and more detail. So I presented those data on fossil pollen. We've been doing some recent work screening for charcoal in the fossil record and to, again, give away results that are not yet published, there seems to be a, a massive spike in the abundance of charcoal in the rock record corresponding with the asteroid impact. It's difficult to find, but when you screen for it using very sensitive methods, it's there. So we've been trying to understand what happens to modern bird communities when this sort of widespread forest destruction takes place. I mean, unfortunately, there are lots of kind of poignant um, present-day examples, including kind of a, uh, destruction of tropical rainforest for palm oil monoculture. Um, I think there's a, a tremendous parallel will be drawn, uh, drawn by um, in, in terms of what's happening in Australia at the moment. And uh, we, I mean, it's unsurprising what you see. You see huge drops in the diversity and disparity of the bird communities that occupy the same part of the planet the second these diverse forest communities disappear. And so, you know, for us it's interesting because we can say, oh yeah, probably it was a, a really rough time for birds 66 million years ago. But, you know, unfortunately it's, it's a really rough time for, for birds and almost everything else alive today um, at the present moment. So, yeah, there's a lot to be learned from it though. <laughs> Not really. I mean, you know, things, things, things rebound. Just give it, you know, 66 million years. <laughs> Yes. Uh, well, I, I hope that there will be some, some media coverage um, associated with it. I, I, I anticipate it because for people who are interested in bird evolution and the bird fossil record, um, I'd say this is probably one of the, the biggest discoveries um, there has been so far. Yes, but it's a controversial thing. So my personal opinion is that it seems more biomechanically plausible to have taken place uh, uh, largely in a, in a tree, trees down context. Um, but the, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to test. Uh, I wish I had been there when Archaeophrix was alive to try to figure out how it was getting around in the air. Um, but it's uh, I, honestly, that's been a controversial subject for 150 years. So, you know, Archaeopteryx, the kind of icon of evolution, was first described in 1861. So that's only two years after the origin of species was first published. So 
again, sort of thinking in, an, in a historical context about evolutionary biology, these toothed birds from the age of dinosaurs really had a huge role to play in terms of, of how people have been thinking about evolution for a long time. And people are still fighting about what the biology of animals like Archaeopteryx would have been like um, in, in 2020. Yes? Might be a very stupid question. Uh, when you were talking about the movement of birds with climate change around 50 or 30 years ago, and that was post Pangaea sort of moving apart. Right. Now, a stupid question might be could they fly if there, was, if there were land bridges and there were possibly this Atlantic other things that started to form? Mm. How do they get from North America to Europe and vice versa? Yeah, I mean, I think you said it. I think, I think they flew. And so, you know, there, there's some bird watchers in the audience and, and any. Sorry? Hummingbirds. Well, I mean, hummingbirds are known to traverse actually large bodies of water. Now, a, a ruby-throated hummingbirds cross the, the Gulf of Mexico. It's incredible. Um, they almost die in the process because they basically use up all of their energy stores. Um, but you sort of think of these kinds of uh, uh, dramatic animal movements, but you marginalize across 50 or 60 million years. I think even really rare dispersal events become much more common when you take those sorts of uh, uh, timescales into account. And flight, at least, you know, we're, we're, oftentimes we're talking about birds that actually do have really high dispersal capabilities. Um, but even organisms with relatively low dispersal capabilities are known to be able to cross vast expanses of water given enough time. Um, the tortoises and the Galapagos, as, a, as an example. So, yes? Um, you said that uh, birds have evolved to living trees before yes. and after yes. the meteorite. Mm -hmm. Have there been other times when different groups have evolved different birds have evolved Sure. I mean, so, so as far as trying to understand what these animals were doing, it's, it's sort of like Archaeopteryx again. Uh, when all you have to go on is, is the bones, you need to identify pretty strong skeletal correlates of behavior in order to say, yeah, we think this thing was probably doing this. And it's always possible that we're wrong. But certainly the structure of the feet in those opposite birds is strongly indicative of living in trees. I mean, the foot is a portion of the bird's skeleton that, uh, where, where the morphology is so strongly dictated by the ecology of these animals that you can often draw very, very strong functional correlates, functional associations just based on anatomy. And so opposite birds are certainly not the only group of Mesozoic stem group birds that exhibit um, that sort of perching foot. So it seems like, I mean, not all of those birds that went extinct 66 million years ago were tree-dwelling birds. Some of them were marine birds. Some of them probably had never set foot in a tree in their lives and you know, still ended up going extinct. Um, but we think that a, a number of those diverse groups were perching birds. And uh, the fact that they went extinct wouldn't have necessarily been easily predictable because they were so abundant before the asteroid struck much more abundant than crown group birds, the group that actually made it through the extinction event. So, I mean, I don't think that the trees, non-trees uh, idea explains everything about what survived and what died, but I think it, it explains a part of the story at least. Yeah, sure. Um, you mentioned about turcos, which I found interesting. I wonder if you have a particular type of bird that you like or Oh yeah. Well, I mean, so you know, I'm a I'm kind of a bird freak. Um, sort of what what I do now is culmination of what I've always been interested in. I was interested in fossils for a long time, and since I was a little kid, since I was about eight or nine, I've been really interested in birds. Also, sort of flipping through books about birds of the world, 
the really colorful things like hummingbirds and, and turricos are the sorts of things that jump out at you and kind of capture your imagination, or at least my imagination when I was really young. So being fascinated by these birds for a long time and, and being able to say something about how they actually came to be um, has been really, really fun. And uh, yeah, turricos certainly, as a, as a group, they're so distinctive and interesting, but very little was known about their early evolutionary history. Um, it was a real thrill to be able to say something about sort of the first fossil turrico-like bird. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure.